We've entitled this sermon series, Beloved, Stand Firm. You are beloved. You are loved by God. You are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. You are loved by us. I love you. You are beloved in the eyes of God. You are special in the eyes of God in the, in the most spiritual sense of the word. And God has called his people to stand firm. And so today we want to start off by studying Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And this really is a passage that helps us to stand and be confident before the Lord. Now, if I were to preach, if I had preached a sermon to you five years ago, and I were, were to ask you the following questions, they would have been, I think, interesting questions, but perhaps a little bit theoretical. So if, if five years ago you were here at Harvest and I were to say to you, you know, who among you would be willing to go to prison for your faith and for the absolute lordship of Christ over his church, you would have been like, hmm, that's, that's an interesting question, but mildly theoretical. It's probably not something we need to worry that much about. After all, people don't go to prison in Canada for their faith, right? People don't go to prison in Canada for saying, no, we believe in the absolute lordship of Christ over the worship and ministry of the Christian church. Or if I said to you, who among you would be willing to actually lose your jobs for the sake of your conscience? Who among you would do that? You'd be like, well, I, th I hope I'd be able to do that and I'd be willing to do that, but that's kind of a theoretical question, isn't it? Or if I were to say to you, um, who among you would be prepared to be ridiculed and la labeled anti-this and anti-that? for the sake of your faith, incessantly for 18 plus months, you'd be like, well, I, I hope I'd stand firm, but I've never really experienced that. Well, five years later, those questions aren't so theoretical, are they? We have seen a rapid, cataclysmic, titanic, and dangerous shift in our culture, especially in the past 18 months where everything's changing so fast, where the authorities have claimed that the church isn't essential, our ministry isn't essential. There's been up to six months of the last 18 months where we're not supposed to meet to, to preach, to discipline, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to practice the one another's, to baptize new converts, to lay hands on the sick, to ordain elders, to practice the one another's. We're being told these things aren't essential. And we've been pressured to close down several times. Originally, we were told that our churches would be closed for two weeks. That turned into three lockdowns. Then we were told that our Messiah is a vaccine. And as long as 70% of the people get the vaccine, we're good to go. Now it's 100%. That's the goal. It's 100% have to get it. Christians are facing threats to their employment um, some have not been able to register in schools they want to go to because of a violation of con conscience. There's actually discuss discussions taking place in social services agencies about the possibility of taking people's children away from them if they don't follow the, the medical narrative of our day and age. They came for me last year. You remember that? And now they're coming for you. And that's the reality of the circumstances that we live in. And then we have before us, just a few weeks from now, the most important election of our lifetimes. The most important election of our lifetimes. And yet, sadly, it would appear that most of the quote-unquote Christian church in Canada is more interested in being nice and silent and compliant than speaking for truth, than boldly standing up as lions against tyranny of the highest order. Sadly, some Christians lack so much discernment, so much spiritual insight, that after 18 months of this, they're still not convinced that we're in a crisis, and yet we are. Well, that's the bad news. The good news is this that none of this will stop Christ's true church. None of it. No suffering, no sorrow, no trial, no tribulation will hinder the King of kings and the Lord of lords from building his church. 
And in fact, what will happen, and it's already happening, is that God will continue to sanctify his people through suffering and trial and tribulation. And this is a good thing. This is what makes it worthwhile. I was talking to a Christian brother by text message last week. He's like, you know, he's just kind of pulling his hair out, as many of us have over the past year. But I said to him, but look around you. Look what God is doing. God is sanctifying his church. The kind of ministry that's taking place in faithful churches across our land is literally unprecedented. We're living in unprecedented times, but God is bringing unprecedented fruit. And so from a human perspective, I hate it. From a spiritual perspective, I love it. Because God is sanctifying and building his church. So let's get into Philippians because Philippians has a an encouraging message for us that will help us to stand firm and know that we are loved by God and help us remind us to stand with one another during these trying times. So real quick background. In the, in the New Testament, there are gospels. There's four of them. Three of them are called synoptic gospels because they're all kind of alike. And then John is a, is a different kind of gospel. Then there's the historical book of Acts. It's more descriptive than prescriptive. You don't draw a lot of your theology out of Acts, but you, you see what God was doing in the early church. And then you get into a series of epistles. And some of them are general epistles to, to broad audiences like Hebrews. Some of them are very specific occasional principles to churches like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, etc. Some of them are personal epistles like the one to Philemon. It was written to an individual. But four of the epistles of Paul, and Paul wrote the most, most, most of the epistles, are called prison epistles. And those include Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. Those are called the prison epistles. So if someone says, hey, do you know what the prison epistles are? Now you know. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And these were all written by Paul as he was in prison because he stole someone's possessions. No, because he was a preacher because he collided with the authorities of his day. And Philippians is often called the epistle of joy. Because even though the guy's in prison, he's writing in such an encouraging way. It's like, you'd almost think that the Philippian church would be writing him to encourage him. He's writing from prison and he's encouraging the church. This is, this is what a true faithful witness is like. When you suffer, you, you use your suffering to encourage others. And he writes to this church to encourage them in hardship, suffering, and trial. And we are going to be encouraged in hardship, suffering, and trial by studying this book today. So let's get into it. Here's the big idea. No matter how hard it gets, we can grow in confidence that God will continue to sanctify us. No matter how hard it gets, we can grow in confidence that God will continue to sanctify us. What does it mean to be sanctified? Made more holy. No matter what happens, No matter what happens, we have the confidence that God will work in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ if we respond appropriately. Now here are four truths from this first little cluster of verses, less than a dozen verses, that will increase your confidence and my confidence, our confidence in hard times. Here's the first one. We have confidence that comes from grace. So join me in the first couple of verses where we have, this is sort of your your introduction to the epistle, Paul and Timothy. So Paul's the primary writer, but Timothy is such a close associate to him. They both kind of take credit for writing it. And then they identify themselves as servants. This is one of the few, if not only, epistle where Paul does not identify himself as an apostle, which he is. He identifies himself in a, in a sort of less prestigious term, a servant, a slave of Christ. And I think he does that to sort of set up the reader for a very affectionate letter. He's not writing so much from a, a, a position of authority here. He's writing to them from the perspective of a co-laborer, a, a fellow sufferer for Christ. So servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So now we know the church that he's identifying. And then uniquely, this is the only epistle where he does this, he identifies the two office bearers of a New Testament church, 
he says, along with the overseers and deacons. So overseers, that's a term that refers to pastors, elders, bishops, overseers. The, the ruling bishops or elders of a New Testament church, the under shepherds of the church, qualified men that must understand Christian doctrine, be able to teach the word of God, have their families in order, be known as hospitable, etc. He identifies them, and then he identifies the second office in the church, which is deacons. This is the, from the word diakonos or diakonai. It comes to us in the New Testament, both the, the male and the female version, which means that men or women who qualify for this can serve as deacons. And the critical difference between elders and deacons is that while deacons must know the word of God, they do not have to have teaching gifts. They do not have to be able to teach or preach the word of God, but they serve the church in practical ways. And then verse two says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ comes up three times there. It's it's a very Christological, Christ-centered epistle. So we have this epistolary greeting we, we, we find out who the writer is. We find out who the recipients are. But because this book has been canonized and preserved for us throughout church history, it's actually a benefit to the entire church from the time of the New Testament to the time of Jesus' second coming. So we're gonna benefit from this as well. Written to them originally, but also by extension, written to us. There's two things rated right of the gates that we need to consider that relate to our identity. This is really important. Understanding who you are. You may not think about this a whole lot, but understanding who you are is critical to every decision you'll ever make. Do you understand who you are? Um, Well, I'm a human. Okay, you got that one down. I'm a male or female. Okay, yeah. You know your name? I know your name. But you know what your identity actually is? Do you know why God has put you here? This, This passage reminds us of our fundamental identity as Christians. Look at the two words that describe us. We are servants. Whose servants? Christ's servants. And secondly, we are saints. What does that mean? Holy ones. Really? Yeah, we are servants of Christ. So this is super critical because what that reminds us of is that we are not primarily here for me, myself, and I. That's not my mission. My mission is not to live as long as I can, to live as healthily as I can, to get as rich as I can, and to have all the pleasures that life offers humanity. That's not my mission. But if we were to open ourselves up to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, we'd probably all admit that more often than not, that's actually how we're living. It's me, myself, and I. So some people even come to Christ for me, myself, and I, and it never lasts. But they come to Christ, well, Jesus... You're like a cosmic genie. You know, you can like fix my problems or you can make me feel better about myself for a while. This is a very uh, horizontal form of Christianity and it always fizzles out at some point. But a vertically minded Christian understands that at the end of the day, the mission of God is the glory of God. I am God's servant. Everything I do, say, buy, sell, every relationship I have. I just need to remind myself, I am a servant of Christ. Not fundamentally a servant of the state, not a servant of my employer, not a servant fundamentally of my wife or my children or you. I am a servant of Christ. And at the end of the day, I will stand before an audience of one, as will you, and give an account for the things I've done in my body, whether they be good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10. So great reminder out of the gates, we are servants of Christ. Folks, you're not here for you. We're not fighting for liberty for ourselves. We're not fighting to keep our churches open for ourselves. We're not seeking to raise our children for Christ so people might say at the end of the day, wow, you're such a great parent. Everything we do is for the glory and honor of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I know you know this, but we all need to be reminded of it. Secondly, we are saints. This does not mean that we are necessarily better than others, but we're a whole lot better off. Because God, by his grace, has taken his righteousness and his perfection, and he has applied it to you if you're a follower of Christ. You're not righteous because you're good. You're righteous because Christ is good. And he has accomplished everything necessary 
to redeem you from your sin and your rebellion and to set you on a sure course for heaven. So we are saints. You know, sometimes in churches like the Catholic Church, you have this notion, well, saints are these people that have performed a miracle. They've been dead for five years. They've been canonized by the church. No, no, everyone who's a true Christian is a saint. Not because you're necessarily particularly saintly, although hopefully you are, but because God's perfection has been credited to you. And so through the eyes of God, you are a holy one. So what is our resource then? Well, look at the final verse there. It says, grace to you and peace. You know, we can just blow through that really quick and not pay much attention to it, but I think it merits some reflection. This is both a statement of, you know, standard greeting. Like you might say to someone, hey, how you doing? They would say grace and peace. So there's, there's a certain... Um, hospitality to this. It's like a statement, wishing them well. But more fundamentally, it's a statement that reminds them of and us of our status. We have received grace from God. And I would argue theologically that because of grace, peace is the result. It doesn't start with peace and then you get grace. You get grace first and then you get peace. We have grace that's been given to us by God, unmerited favor of cataclysmic proportions. Now, God's grace, of course, manifests, manifests itself in a variety of ways. God's grace manifests itself in creation. What do we mean by that? Well, you got born. You get to enjoy life. There's many pleasures to life. That's grace. Not everybody gets to be born. Not everybody survives the birth canal. Not everybody gets as much life as you have. God has been gracious to you. Think about that. So you get grace in creation and in your existence. Then when you come to a point in your life where you realize you're a sinner and you repent of your sins, you get grace and salvation. So now you have a whole new relationship with Christ. You don't just get life. You get eternal life, which is much better than this life. So we have grace in creation, general grace. We have grace in salvation, saving grace. And then as we live our lives following Christ, we get sanctifying grace. God works in us and through us to sanctify us. So each year, each day, or whatever increment of time you want to identify, you should be, coming, you should be becoming a little more like Jesus. God is clarifying your stinking thinking. He's clarifying the way you speak, your attitudes towards others, your priorities. Now, we are responding to God's work because sanctification is synergistic. We're responding to God's work. But ultimately, it's grounded in the grace of God, sustaining us and, and, and enabling us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And all of this comforts and empowers us. And folks, God's grace never ends. It never expires. Milk expires, eggs expire, meat expires, and you will expire. But God's grace never expires. It just keeps going on and on and on and on. And out of that, we also have peace. Peace is the result of grace, and it's positional, meaning we are now at peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God. The unbeliever is. We're not at enmity with God. We are at peace with God. So it's positional. Things are good between us and God. God actually sees us as his servants and saints. And we are at peace with him. That's positional peace. But we also get practical peace. You know, the Bible talks about peace that surpasses human understanding. You ever had that? Things are getting really screwy. It doesn't make sense. You've received a diagnosis from your physician that's bad news. You just lost a loved one. You lost your job. Something cataclysmic's happening. The wheels have fallen off the cart. And yes, there's, a, there's maybe an anger. There's a, initially a resentment. There's some frustration. There's some confusion. But then you cry out to the Lord and he just kind of gives you peace. And that peace is not contingent upon your problems being fixed 
but it's contingent upon you trusting in the Lord. Have you had that? We need some of that right now, right? Because sometimes it's, it's really hard when we see what's going on around us to find ourselves there. And then the third kind of peace is peace with one another. We, we have positional peace with the Lord and we have practical peace, I hope, most days with the Lord. Well, that affects the way we treat each other. So it's, it's a relational kind of peace. We want to live at peace with one another. So all of those elements of peace are implied in this opening greeting that the Lord has given to his church. Now, we need to maybe add a little qualifier to the word peace when we're pursuing it in our relationships. And that is that sometimes peace with man is an illusion. It's not going to happen. Not every relationship is going to be marked by peace because there's people that don't love the Lord or they refuse to reconcile or they're bitter or they're enemies of God or enemies of his people. We strive for it. That's a goal, but sometimes it's an illusion. Peace does not mean that we remain quiet or compromise truth. In other words, when God calls us to peace with one another, it's not to be understood as a peace at all costs. It's not peace at the expense of the Lordship of Christ over your life. It's not peace at the expense of truth. I think most of us would much prefer to be at peace with everyone. And so our means of getting peace quickly is often we just back away. We don't say anything. We're silent and we're just nice. But that kind of peace doesn't last. Peace requires truth. It requires relationship with God. It requires that God does a work to bring about a relationship that makes peace possible. Jesus didn't keep the peace at all costs, did he? Did Jesus keep the peace at all costs? No, he stirred the pot. He offended people. He used strong language. Jesus didn't keep the peace at all costs. But at the same time, Jesus gave us peace at great cost. The peace that surpasses understanding, the peace that results from a relationship with God. So out of the gates, just remember that you are a servant of Christ. Just remember that. Secondly, remember that you are a saint, that before God, you've been made righteous. And third, thank God for the grace and peace that he's extended to you. So we have confidence that arises and erupts from those truths. Secondly, we have confidence that comes from partnerships. Hey, look around you for a moment. You're not the only person in the room. We're together as the family of God. Paul understood how precious partnerships are, how precious the church of Jesus Christ is. What a blessing to be together in this battle and fight. I know we like to talk about our personal relationship with Christ and it's important, but you know, in the Bible, our interpersonal relationships are also important because we are the body of Christ and we need each other. So there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. You cannot ever grow meaningfully as a Christian and not be part of the Christian church. If you've been told that, you've been told a flat-out lie. It will destroy you. Listen to how Paul speaks in very glowing terms of the church. Again, I'm sure the church had gossip in it, and people offended each other, and maybe had some personalities that you know, rubbed you the wrong way. Every church has conflict. But listen to how he speaks of the church. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. All? Yeah, all the time. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. To see those words of emphasis, all, every, they're repeated. Because of your partnership, the word partnership, you probably know this word, it's koinonia, the word for fellowship. And it refers to brotherly affection in a common faith. So it's a, it's a warm connection that has a foundation to it. 
because of your partnership, because of your koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul has affection for the church. He loves the church. He stands for the church. He believes in the church. When he thinks of God's people, his heart is warmed. He loves the idea of partnerships. Do you love God's church that much? It makes you wonder sometimes if Christians even love God's church. Some of them don't even bother participating in God's church, but they claim to be Christians. Or they jump from church to church to church to church to church to church. Now, sometimes you do need to leave a church if there's heresy, false teaching, division. But if you've left like 18 churches in your life, chances are the problem's you. Problem's you. Do you love God's people? Do you have a persevering faith, a humble faith, a patient faith? Folks, God, even in ways we don't necessarily understand, God is sanctifying us and we're together. He's just rubbing off those sharp edges. He's challenging our thinking. He's you know, disciplining us. He's directing us. Sometimes we think of church discipline as you know, excommunication. But today, every one of us is being disciplined, knowingly or unknowingly. We're all being disciplined. We're being adjusted. We're being corrected. We're, we're, we're growing in our grit, our perseverance. Every time we're with other Christians, we are actually under church discipline. We're, we're being disciplined to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful thing. It's something we should long for. In a world of chaos, by the way, how much more have we understood in the past year and a half? We need one another, right? When you've been locked out of your church, your church has been closed down, You've been running to barns and office buildings and basements to try to worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't get up anymore in the morning on a Sunday and you're like, eh, I think I'll cut the grass. You're like, I want to be with God's people. I want to be in the church. And we, I think we've all experienced this. We have a, a heightened appreciation for the people of God. It's a beautiful thing. And in this chaotic world, we need one another. And the light, of the, the light and beauty of Christ shines through the church. So here are some ways that that's expressed, which Paul reminds us of. We should remember one another fondly and with joy. That was his attitude. That was his, shall we call it, his posture toward the church. We should remember, think about one another during the week. There's some, something about thinking about other people considering their concerns and even praying for them that expands and enlarges your heart for God's church. Secondly, we should pray for one another regularly. Paul talks about doing that with the church. As we cross one another's minds, we, we pray for one another. Third, we are partners in proclamation. Don't leave it to me to do all the proclaiming. We're all proclaimers. We're all heralds of a great message. Some of us teach publicly, some of us teach privately, some in conversations, but we're all partners together in the proclamation of the gospel, are we not? We have a beautiful message. And then we persevere together. This text tells us that this early church stuck with Paul. It says, from the first day until now. They had perseverance, they had grit, they had patience, they didn't give up. Don't be a quitter. Persevere in the mission that God has given to you. And part of your mission for your life is to be part of God's people as we faithfully represent the purposes and values of God into a lost and dying world. So let's be thankful for one another. Let's pray for one another. And let's stick together as we seek to do mission for Christ. Third, we have confidence that comes from knowing the future. We don't know everything that's going to happen in the future. But we know the big picture, the important stuff. We already know what, what's going to happen in the future. This is what the word of God says in verses 6 and 7. I've, I've quoted Philippians 1 verse 6 so many times because it's, it's such a great summary of the hope and the promise that we have of God. It says here, and I am sure of this, sure, certain, that he who began a good work in you, who's the he, by the way? Your mom, your dad, your friend. No, it's, it's, this is a reference to God's work. He who began a good work in you will, not might, will bring it to completion 
at the day of Christ Jesus. This is why we teach in our church a doctrine called perseverance of the saints. The true church, there's going to be apostates that come and go. There's going to be people that fall away from the faith. But those that are truly regenerate, have truly been born again, are truly filled with the Spirit of God, based upon the work of God, will endure to the end. It's not a might, a maybe, it's not a subjunctive, it's absolute. And then it says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Paul had emotions, wonderful emotions that we should have, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Again, verse 6, we have confidence that God will continue to sanctify us. Previously, we're reminded that we are partners in proclamation. Here, we're partners in our destination. We're all sure and assured of the same future. So those of us that know and love the Lord and have had our lives transformed, we may move to different cities, we may die at different times, we may not see each other every day, but the relationship that we have right now, think about this for a moment, is for keeps. This relationship will never end, not in all of eternity. All of us will spend forever and ever and ever together because of the work of Christ. Pretty cool thought, isn't it? We might have only known each other for a year. Well, now you're going to have to put up with me for the next billion, trillion, zillion years. Because God has seen fit to work in your life and my life. Our salvation literally starts and stops with Jesus. It's all based upon what Jesus has done for us. And we know that one day Jesus' return will bring about the, the culmination of our faith. So, in Christian eschatology, there's different eschatological views, and some of this will interest some of you more than others. But for example, there's a, there's a broad view called postmillennialism, and postmillennialists believe that the kingdom of God is going to manifest itself in this world, and then the world's going to get better and better and better, and then Christ is going to return. And premillennialists have more of an opt, a, a, a negative, um, a pessimistic uh, eschatology. The world's going to get worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to return. And good Christians can differ on that. Some have an optimistic eschatology. Some have a pessimistic eschatology. But only up to the second coming of Christ. Then everybody's eschatology is optimistic. Everybody's opt- every, everyone in this church has an optimistic eschatology beyond the second coming of Christ. Because Christ wins. And because he wins, we win. He is the victor. Christus victor. And because he is the victor, we are victorious in Christ. Look at the surety. Do you have this kind of surety? Can you say, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in me, in us, in our church, in my family, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. A reference to his second coming. The kind of affection that we should have for one another should be obvious. It should be natural. Now, let me just make this observation because I want to illustrate to you that I do live in the same world as you do. It is true that your personality will affect the way that you express and receive emotion. Some people are, are very outwardly affectionate. Some people are a little bit, you know, stiff upper lip. You don't see it a lot. And that's fine. You know, we have different cultures represented in the room, different personalities. We have men, we have women. We all express our affection differently. But deep inside, inside of our chests, all of us, when we monitor our heart, should have just absolute love and affection for one another. Just absolutely. Folks, I am in love with you. And we're in love with one another. And the reason why we have that love and passion for Christ and his church and his people, even through the hard times, is because God has done a miraculous work in us and our hearts have been made new and enlarged for Christ. And it's such a beautiful thing for us to be able to express that to one another. Paul found comfort from the church in suffering. His heart was enlarged and comforted just knowing 
I'm still in jail. My circumstances haven't been fixed. But God is at work. And the church is beautiful. It is Christ's bride. This is the mindset that we should have toward the church. When you're at weddings, you don't look back at the bride and go, <laughs> isn't she ugly? You, know? you see her for all of her beauty. You find joy in the moment. You're honored to be there. Is she perfect? No, she's not perfect. She has flaws. But you love her and you hope for the best in her. And this is the image that God applies to the church. We are the bride of the groom who is Christ. Let's not dishonor the bride. Let's not poo-poo the bride. Let's not say, I don't, I don't need the bride. We are the bride of Christ. And there's something beautiful about that. Now you'll notice as well at the end of verse 7, Paul speaks of his imprisonment. Okay, this is super relevant, folks. Because I hope you're aware by now there's a debate in the Christian church as to what it means to be a good witness. You're aware of that? So there's the winsome witness crowd that would say, oh, being a good witness is being compliant. Being a good witness is obeying everything the authorities tell us. Being a good witness is trusting the elitists, a.k.a. the experts, and whatever edict they happen to drop. That's our witness. But as I read scripture, I'm like, where in the Bible is, is a witness framed up in that way? A, a, a witness is someone who is faithful to the commands and injunctions of Christ, no matter what, and no matter what the world thinks about it. That's a faithful witness. Whether the world applauds you, punches you in the face, or runs you through with a spear. We don't define what a witness is based upon the world's response. A faithful witness is one that is faithful not to the expectations of the world. A faithful witness is one that is faithful to the expectations of Christ. And there's some teaching about that you can read in your own in Matthew chapter 10. But that theme actually comes up here. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What's he talking about there? Paul's imprisonment. Just think about this for a moment. You've got to track with me. Paul's imprisonment, i.e. his suffering, served to both defend and confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, it's a way of him declaring to the world, actually, I'm a servant of Christ, I'm a saint, and I'm going to live for him no matter what you say is right or wrong speaking to the world. And it confirmed it. When you suffer for Christ and you come through it, and you're on the other side and you're like, ah, I didn't think I was going to make it, but I made it. It actually confirms your faith. It proves you're the real deal. But if you buckle, you've shown yourself to either be backslidden or a fake. Those are really your only two options. You're either backslidden or you're fake. So being faithful to Christ, even when the world attacks us, and of course, we're not suggesting that you know, every time we're attacked by the world, it's necessarily their fault. I mean, if you're killing people or driving 300 kilometers an hour down the 401, but you're listening to Christian music <laughs> on the way, you can't say, well, I was suffering for Christ. But when you take a stand for Christ, for his lordship over his church, over life, over personal conscience and liberty, over all the things the historic church fought for, then you're being faithful to Christ. And the Lord will use you to be a bold witness. He will defend himself and confirm his gospel through your witness. So that even in Matthew chapter 10, when we're, when we're dragged before the rulers, the authorities, we will still be faithful to Christ to the end. So let's make sure that we have founded our assurance on Christ and that we're willing to suffer to confirm the gospel. In fact, you will never grow up and mature and be like Jesus without some degree of suffering in your life. It's not possible. God uses suffering to sanctify his people. And it is painful, but it's certainly a very loud megaphone, isn't it? That awakens us to what really matters most. 
Fourth and finally, we have confidence that comes from spiritual growth. So we're looking at our lives and we're observing God maturing us. Well, this increases our confidence that it's going to continue to happen. For God is my witness. So Paul actually points to God as his witness. By the way, a witness is not like someone who's... And the, the word here is martis. Does that sound familiar? Martyr? Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? God is my witness. It's not like God is is defending him, but the word here means God is his spectator or observer. So he's like, hey, God is watching us. And we need to remember this when we sin, when we get up in the morning to serve the Lord. God is watching us. He is, he's our spectator. He's our observer. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, demonstrating his pastor's heart for his flock. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, how is love expressed? Is it just an emotion? Do we just express love through kisses and hugs? Through um, giving of cards, giving and receiving of gifts? Is that love? Is love just an emotional thing? Is it disconnected from the mind, from the will? No. Look what it says. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and then the ultimate goal to the glory and praise of God. So Paul here has a pastor's heart, even though he wasn't a pastor, he was an apostle, but we should all have a pastor's heart in this respect, a shepherd's heart, a, a desire to bless and encourage and build up God's people, something we should all aspire to. And if you do love others, you will pray for others that they will grow in the way that Paul says we should grow in knowledge and discernment and the ability to approve that which is excellent in purity and blamelessness until Jesus Christ comes back. It's like, well, how do I know if I love God's people? Well, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Is that reflective of your mindset? So how do we kind of break this down? Well, we have um, the word love, the word knowledge, the word discernment. It'd probably be valuable just to spend a second or two on each. So what are these things we're striving for? Love. What is love? Love is an affection that results from the spirit of Christ operating in your, your heart, mind, soul, so that you might love and show affection to God's people. So it's not just, oh, I went to church today. I was told I need to love people. So I'm just going to try to think nice thoughts. Oh, it's allowing the spirit of Christ to live large in you so that your heart is expanded for others. And then knowledge. Now, this kind of knowledge is not referring specifically to, you know, knowledge of um, mathematics or grammar or geography. There's a lot of knowledge out there that's good knowledge. But this is referring to godly moral knowledge. The kind of knowledge that Christians have, because we have a Bible and we have the Spirit of God working. And what this reminds us of is that love, listen to this carefully, cannot be separated from truth. Ever been to a love church? Very loving. But there's some churches that are so loving, there's no truth there. I was with a bunch of Christians recently, and I genuinely love them. And they're very loving people. I was encouraged. But when I was just dialoguing with them, I realized there's, there's just not a lot... There's not a lot of content here. There's not a lot of truth. Nobody's really saying anything. It's just a lot of, um, shall I say, smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of words, a lot of posturing, but there's no, there's no truth. There's, it's not grounded in Christ. It's not grounded in his word. Love is not divorced from truth. And if you have truth, you should also then grow in discernment. So now we have churches that are big into knowledge, right? We have the, the teaching churches. They just, they teach the Bible, they teach the Bible, they teach the Bible. They're not necessarily super loving. And some of them aren't even very discerning. They don't seem to understand what's going on in the world. Have you noticed that? 
lot of churches that are loving, supposedly filled with the Spirit, they're not very discerning. They're not engaged with what's going on. And then you have the truth churches. They got the truth going on this week, but they're not discerning either. They don't seem to understand what's going on in the world. We want to strive to have all three as Christians. So discernment is a perception of spiritual things. If you're a person that's growing in discernment, you will be growing in your ability to spot lies. You're listening to the news. You're like, I, I, hear, I just heard that lie. I heard the lie. I, I heard, I'm listening to this sermon. I, I just heard a lie there. I'm singing this song or listening to this song on the radio. I, there's a lie. I'm in a conversation. I just heard a lie. Discerning people can spot the lies. People that don't have discernment can't spot the lies. That's one expression of it. You'll also be able to spot deception. You won't be manipulated. You won't be duped. You won't be taken in. You will understand that the world revolves around patterns of behavior. If a person has done the same thing a month ago, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, a week ago, and today, they're going to do the exact same thing tomorrow. You won't be duped. You won't trust the system. You won't trust the state. You, you won't trust everything you're told. You will be like a Berean who assesses and analyzes things against the word of God. Frankly, folks, perhaps more than anything else in the Christian church today, like right now, we need a massive uptake in people growing in discernment because so many are being deceived. So many are being deceived. And this is why we're not just fighting against a virus or a few medical edicts. That's, that's, that's the least of our concerns. We are fighting against a worldview that is corrupt to the core. And unfortunately, many people in the church, we've discovered that's actually their worldview with a little Jesus added on. So we need to grow in discernment and pray that the Lord would give us the ability to look ahead, to look back, to analyze, and to assess the situation that we're in. And look at the benefits that erupt out of this. If we have love, knowledge, and discernment, we get to approve what is excellent, meaning we will be able to distinguish between good and evil. It'll be just super obvious to us. Yep, that's right, that's wrong. I can see it. It's super clear. A lot of people are shy about being black and white thinkers. Well, you should be a black and white thinker. There's right and there's wrong. And you should know it. And you should be growing in it and be able to defend it. Secondly, you'll be pure and blameless. In other words, our sanctification will continue until Jesus comes back. Now, this is not like an absolute purity and blameless. I, I am not absolutely pure and blameless by any stretch of the imagination. Just ask my wife. All of us have sin in our lives. But in general, as a general principle, we should all be able to say, I'm, I'm pure and blameless because I follow Jesus. It's not false humility, it's the truth. And we have 2 Corinthians 5, 10 out in front of us. What does it say? For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each will receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Well, that's in front of us. We know that's going to happen. So we should be able to say, yeah, I'm living a pure and blameless life. And then finally, we manifest spiritual fruit, meaning that, we, we pattern our lives after God's standards, not man. So humanity has a, uh, a set of quasi-fake morals that you're supposed to aspire to. And then God has morals, and his are the real deal. This is spiritual fruit. This is not spiritual fruit. Notice that in the world today, how politicians and movie stars, they're, they're so moral, right? And the politically correct issues. They're not moral when it comes to the sanctity of the, the unborn, the sanctity of the life of the unborn. They're not moral about human sexuality. They're not moral about marriage. They're not moral about money. They're not moral in their dress. They're not moral in any of that. But all of a sudden, they're concerned about racism. Really? I'm concerned about racism, but I'm pretty sure you're not. They're concerned about equality. Really? I actually understand what equality is. You don't. They're concerned about love for your neighbor. What a joke. A prime minister and a premier 
that preside over a province and a nation that kills babies in the womb and they're telling me I should love my neighbor? It's, it's, folks, it's all smoke and mirrors. These are not moral people. These are satanic people. These are antichrist. Maybe not the final antichrist, but these are antichrist. I mean, imagine going to a, a federal penitentiary and sitting down with a serial killer or a pedophile and being lectured on how to raise your children. He's like, come on, dude. But somehow, if you have an office, you've been elected to office. All you, you're presiding over the genocide of children. You're telling people you can pick your gender. The weed store is more important than the church. But you're, you're lecturing me on morality? <laughs> it's, it's just absurd. It's, if it wasn't so sad, it would be laughable. This is the spiritual, the unspiritual fruit of men. This is rotten fruit. It looks good on the outside. You bite into it, it's got a big worm in it. It's rotten. God's spiritual fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And it increases in our lives as we surrender ourselves to Christ and allow him to operate in us and through us. And we grow in that through love, knowledge, and discernment. And then finally, look at the end of the verse, to the glory and praise of God. What is the mission of your life and mine? Get into heaven? Living well. No. What's the ultimate mission of your life and mine? The glory of God. You're here to make him look good. You're here to give him fame. You're here to point people away from yourself to him. That is your goal. That's the vertical life that should drive Christian churches. We would call this a doxological mindset rather than a self-serving mindset. To give doxology is to give praise to God. It's a vertical, doxological way of living. My life exists at the end of the day. Who cares about Aaron Rock, what he accomplishes, how long he lives, whether he'll be known or unknown, whether he'll be famous or obscure, what his gifts are or aren't. Who cares about Aaron Rock? I don't matter. God matters. And my life is only meaningful and purposeful and useful to the degree that I point you to the Lord and give him glory. And that undermines, undergirds, and motivates everything we should do as a church. It's not about us. Who cares about us? Life is like a vapor. We're going to come and we're going to go. But we want to leave this world knowing that God has received much glory and praise through our lives. So Pursue the insight that Christ offers. Strive after the spiritual fruit and live for his glory, church. The days might be dark, but the future is bright. It's bright. And together with Christ, we shall overcome. <laughs> 